0: And now, When Did That Come Out, part of the Real Change Movie Podcast. Thank you for hitting the download, and welcome to the second episode of When Did That Come Out, an ongoing two-man journey of covering one year of film and 12 movies that came out for every month of that year. I am your host, Charlie Stabile. You can say it.
1: Oh, I can't? Oh, okay, great. I was just making sure. <laughs> I was just making sure. Maybe I should have introduced you. That's okay. I'm William Rinkin. <laughs> All right.
0: And uh, this is this is real change. Here we go. Let's do this. So today we will be talking about the 1986 film FX, which is our February movie. Uh, FX. Not a very well-known movie uh, anymore, but this was a movie that's always been on our radar for as long as I can remember reading it in Leonard Moulton's book. How about you, Will?
1: Yeah, about the same. I mean, I always kind of thought about it when I turned on FX, the channel, but <laughs> but I never quite had, responsibly. The, I never had the impulse <laughs> to actually go and watch it, you know?
0: <laughs> well, well, same here, man. So I, I bought the two-pack on It was which came on one DVD about like I want to say seven years ago, and I just never watched it. So I made a digital copy of it and sold it, and I just saw FX (laughs) through the digital copy. And this is a pretty good movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, I think it's more than pretty good. I think it's pretty solid all the way around. Yeah, there's nothing I don't think inherently wrong with it.
0: Uh, I mean, it does certain things within the genre that it lives in that. Are kind of unexpected and and maybe it, they could have done it better but the fact that it was different was a welcome surprise just for me so
1: <clears throat> go ahead oh no, no no go ahead that's fine i think oh, you, I gonna... you covered it
0: yeah well that ought to do it so let's talk, about, it. Our, See let's talk about our you guys later cast here <laughs> let's talk about our cast uh and this was always i'll be honest one of the drawbacks to me not going to see going to out of my way to see this movie was uh, the leading man was is Brian Brown and his co-star Brian Dennehy Brian Brown who I only really knew from Cocktail uh, at the time and as recently, like I think the most recent thing he's done that's that's worth mentioning, honestly, is Along Came Polly, which he's fantastic in that
1: movie. I would also say Australia. He, he was in that. He is in Australia. Well, yeah. we hate that movie. Man. I know. We, yeah. we,
0: we, we, that movie. That movie's a big pile. Of-
1: yeah, he's just mm. the heavy in that. That's he's a, wow. well, he's the heavy for like the first hour and a half, and then of course World War Two is the heavy for the second half. <laughs>
0: Now is that real fourteen of the eighteen real movies? It, it was. about <laughs> okay. Nobody debated
1: this. If you actually cut out, if you just rolled credits after that segment of the movie is done, I don't think people would notice.
0: No, I think that was it. It was. It was either that, or you start the cut halfway through real five, and then and then pick it back up at the beginning of real seven. Right. Uh, the, the, it was. It was one of those things. Yeah, because it was an it was an eight reel movie. So
1: God, Dude, it was ten reels. It was
0: 10 reels. See, they don't have to worry about this anymore with the digital age. No, <laughs> no. God damn, that movie's bad. Um, but Brian Dennehy, who I always heard was the best part of the movie, and big surprise, he is. He's one of the great character actors of his of his time Uh, prior to fx i mean the his most notable thing probably of all for me is first blood uh, as teasel he's an amazing villain uh to john rambo and you know they he was the bad guy in silverado same year he did cocoon so he had a number of of quality films under his belt as opposed to brian brown who was more of a tv actor it seems at the time he had done a mini-series back in, I believe it was 1982, called The Thorn Birds, where he was nominated for Golden Globe. And I think this, this miniseries got a lot of eyes on him. It was the largest watched miniseries in America other than The Roots, which had come out, I believe, five years prior. So this was kind of like his jump into mainstream film. And this is one of those movies, man. When we've talked about this, it's it's an A-list idea but with B-list actors. And we love this.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, FX isn't like, uh, I, I I think that's the best way to describe it. It is an A-list idea, because you could totally see somebody like, a, like let's just throw out Harrison Ford, you know, in sure. the 80s doing this type of movie with, uh, let's see, like, who would have been like an A-list Dennehy type of guy? Um, in the 80s? I yeah jeez you could hmm
0: what about the, uh, the, the, a kind of middle-aged uh, stalwart? How about don
1: amici how about don amici? <laughs> don amici
0: harrison ford and don amici <laughs> the guy who's 40 years older has twice the life <laughs> okay let's maybe not don amici but yeah like that's that's a good that's a good way to look at it um but yeah you know, the beam the b uh the B actors in the A movie we we discussed this on our other podcast with you know, sadly, it was Twister, um, Bill Paxton, oh boy, but like that was another one where they're Bill Paxton and Helen Hunter leading this movie. This is clearly supposed to be a major blockbuster film. and FX, I can't help but think this movie would be far more recognized and known had it had a known lead actor. You could keep Dennehy. Because yeah. this is the kind of part that Dennehy revels in. This is the kind of thing that he's really good at. But the lead actor, I mean huh, – and it's got to be because of the budget, don't you think, that was set on this movie?
1: Yeah. I almost feel like Mark Harmon would have been a <laughs> would have been like an 80s substitute for Not Brian when I'm Brown. drinking
0: beer. Goddamn. <laughs> Mark, fresh off of summer school.
1: But yeah, the um, the budget, you said, is around $10 million, in which – Last time we talked about Iron Eagle was like 18, wasn't that right? right? About 18 million. Yep. So, Check. you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so mil. mm-hmm, t- 10 million. I mean, you can tell that they were investing more in, well, a few of the, the sequences in here you could tell were probably where most of the, the budget went.
0: That car chase. Th- there's a car chase that occurs in the middle of the movie between
1: Brian Brown and
0: Joe Grafazzi. First of all, it's way too long but i think it's because they wanted to justify their budget a lot of the money seems to have for me from what i could see went there which i mean let's let's get into the movie itself yeah why, why does this movie take place in new york city
1: i mean the the only justification the only one i could possibly say is that this is like a b movie you know like this isn't even an a movie we would probably say in the 80s this would it could have been an independent you know sure but that that's never really explained that's just the best explanation i could say
0: it's just with new york new york apparently has a burgeoning film scene where people are constantly being hired (laughs) to work behind the scenes and not only that but there there's a lot of on location shooting going on in new york city as the opening scene would tell us which i love i love the opening of the movie i love that i love that it sets up an illusion within the first two minutes and it fakes the audience out uh as a lead-in for what's about to come later on in the movie because one thing i was not expecting while watching this were how many twists and turns that it had which ties into the film noir aspect of the film
1: I'd say just to build on even more, look at the opening credits as like a storyboard coming to life as it is drawn in little by little. And then all of a sudden, well, it's not actually drawn in, but it fades in to more detail to where it's, oh, it's a skyline. And then this is when trench coat actor comes out of the car. You can... You could see this totally as a storyboard, and that's what makes this opening scene so cool. And like you said, it sets up the illusion, and, and it's awesome because it's almost like they do this scene again like 20 minutes later. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's well, and I think that has to do with the fact that Raleigh is, has very limited time to pull this off. I love movies like this where some guy gets hired and he says, I don't have the time to do this. And yet money convinces him, you know what, I think I do got a couple of minutes but um, yeah and that's
1: you know when you're talking about noir mm-hmm. that's a trope of noir it's always mm-hmm. somebody who's enticed by you know some some circumstance it's like yeah you may have a tight window but look at how much we're going to give you he's going to get what like um, 30 grand for doing what they say is 60 seconds of work you know so as you were saying like it really is like it sets up just like a noir like just like it in terms of we want you to do this we know it's uh time constraints are not in your favor but look at the payday so
0: it's a hell of a payday for him and i don't know exactly what special effects artists were making back in the 80s i don't know how how much money this would be to them or, or considering new york city living costs back in the 80s like 1986 in particular but yeah it's a lot of money it's it's a good job we should probably point out uh it's hard to talk about the plot of the movie without giving away certain plot twists. Basically, Raleigh Tyler, the Brian Brown character, is a special effects artist who is hired by I, the police. I don't know what sector of police this is, but he's hired by the police to fake a mob hit and because the guy who Jerry Orbach from the mob took money. he basically, He's basically Leo Getz from Lethal Weapon 2, only he's a piece of shit he's just a bad guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and that's that's basically the plot of the movie and it it, it spins and curtails from there. Uh, you were, you mentioned to me earlier before we started recording about the three types of noir films and I thought that was very interesting. Can you elaborate on that a
1: little bit? Yeah, I mean, when it comes on to noir Most of the time, it's a private eye, right? That's the most common is that a private eye, usually not a great one, one that you kind of find in a hole in the wall type of place. Uh, He's given this seemingly easy case that becomes something much bigger, much like what happens to Brian Brown's Raleigh character here. Um, The other a lot of times is a a down on his luck Kind of common guy, you know, who is comes into contact with a femme fatale that totally rocks his world to the point where she's got him wrapped around his finger, her finger um, and convinces him to do this really radical thing. And it turns out she's playing him the whole time with Chinatown. Exactly, which mm-hmm. you and I talked about is a good thing that we didn't get this in here. I'm really we glad they stuck that. to more of the former of the two tropes that we were just talking about when it comes to noir.
0: And this is one of the un- un- unexpected surprises that I found in the movie. I actually got really excited. I came out of my seat when the girlfriend character was sh- uh, shot uh, in her apartment by a sniper because uh, I was just like, oh, God, we're going to. Have to do a romance story in this? Oh, Jesus. And then she gets wiped out. And it's just like, I don't know where we're going from here, but I'm along for the ride. I'll
1: and tell you, Charlie, real quick. As soon as she opened the curtains, I went, Bip! Did you laugh? Did you <laughs> no. Because <laughs> the more movies you watch, and you, it's not like you have to be a genius, but you know when a director sets up a shot like that, that something bad is probably going to happen. You know? I don't
0: know why I didn't see it coming, because you're right.
1: It's like, like the other one a cliche, is
0: always... It's a cliche from another genre.
1: Right. It's like, anytime you see a character walking towards the camera, but he's not looking in that direction... He's, he's going to get hit by a car. Something, he, when he turns his head, he's either going to see like a minotaur or a bullet or something. You never know. It's, is it's that like, Mulholland Drive? That's right. You that just pulled out? <laughs> kind of. I think it's like a... Isn't it a guy in a gorilla costume? I thought it was a guy in a bear suit. Yeah, something uh, like
0: that. Yeah. You know, I need to go back and watch that film because I don't, I don't recall them resolving that. Talk <laughs> and about and that, that was noir. what I kept waiting. Wow. Yeah, that, that is that is an award. But the, not to go off topic, but that's David Lynch with Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. Can't wait for that to come back. But yeah, that's that's something that he tends to excel in, which makes me laugh even more that he was George Lucas's first choice for Return of the Jedi. <laughs>
1: That would have been some movie. I I would have really uh, been interested. having a little... (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: you you could have had a guy come out in a bear costume. It wouldn't have made any difference. I swear, Return of the Jedi, they get really lazy with a lot of those aliens that they come up with in the the Java scene.
1: Do you think Raleigh would have done some of the effects for uh, (laughs) Return of the Jedi?
0: Nice segue. So let's talk about the movies that Raleigh has worked on. (laughs) Because this is... This is, to me, very fascinating. Uh, the only title that I really remember coming off the top of my head is I Dismember Mama. And it, these are hilarious titles, of like the Beast of a Thousand Fathoms, Fathoms kind of thing, where these are clearly B and C movies that we're talking about. And yet everyone seems to have seen
1: these movies and been, and not only seen them, but are big fans of them. Well, including the Justice Department, you know? like Right! Like, that's the best part to me is any time you have a movie like this that has a scheme or anything like that, I always like to think about it from the perspective of the, of the villains, and it's like, when did they sit down and plot this out? I don't know if you could plot this out. Because <laughs> every time I yeah. think
0: I've got it, I, I have this movie figured out, there's something else that happens. I just wait... wait. It's a, it's a goddamn pretzel the size of, I don't know, Mount Rushmore. It's, it's, there's, just, there's almost too much. There's almost too much going on here. And it, we should mention, there are, two, there are two movies going on here. And I'm, I always love movies like this, where there's two main characters, basically, Brian Brown, Brian Dennehy. And they do not meet up with each other until the end of the movie. So they never spend any time throughout the production shooting scenes together. It's only when it comes together at the end. And I mean, are you on board with this? Are, do you Do you prefer the Brian Dennehy version or or of the story or the Brian Brown?
1: Well, it's wild because we don't even meet Denny till forty five minutes in. i
0: I paused it just to see how long it had been because i i could not wait for him to show up
1: the movie's only an hour 50 so Mm -hmm. he's only got an hour to get his get his stuff in you know he's got to he's got to get his work i'm trying to think of wrestling (laughs) here you know he's trying to get his stuff of course (laughs) you have stuff (laughs) (laughs) but um between the two stories the den he won to me is a lot more interesting because there are a lot of things that are implied but not said. Like, look at the way he's introduced. He's introduced just like Tom Berenger in Major League. It's almost right, the, same it's the same thing.
0: same <laughs> thing.
1: Uh, but you notice he has a wedding ring on, so he's right. probably had, his, his wife has probably left him, and look, by the look of the place, it probably is confirmed when you look at just how much disarray that it's in. It's also, you know, it's not even really implied. It's pretty much said he is one of the guys who helped bring in Jerry Orbach's character in the first place. Right. But there were strings attached with that. Like you can tell he's one of those cops that is all about the business, but always kind of gets in his own way when it comes to the politics and, you know, maybe doing things down to the to the letter, you know, and yeah. That's the, the rivalry we see between his character and Trey Wilson's detective character, you know, in the movie. But the thing that you and I were, were talking about that's really funny is like when when Brian Brown has everything turned upside down on him, you know, I, I guess we'll go back. We'll talk about what his scheme is real quick in terms of, you know, how he misses Doubt fires up Jerry Orbach to get a mask and <laughs> – <laughs> the squibs. And-
0: I swear this movie has come up in every conversation we've had all week. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> Mrs. is doubtfire. But like, <laughs> after things go awry for for Raleigh, and Brian Brown is on the case trying to figure out, okay, he comes to the apartment, and you can talk about that fight scene in a bit, because I know you love it. It's sure. a good one. But he comes to the apartment, he sees the dead girlfriend, he sees now the the... Well, we know he's the dead sniper, but to them at first, it's like, "Oh, it's a dead agent," you know. Right. But right, it, right. after that, it's like what a matter of maybe ten minutes before Brian. Then he's like, "Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think Brian Brown did it."
0: <laughs> no, th- th- and that's and that's the weird thing too, because I'm I was perfectly happy and surprised with them eliminating uh, the girl in in the movie that sounds terrible coming out of my mouth but that's 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 how i felt cuz i feel like I've, I've seen that movie but the movie that i'm used to seeing is the guy that is basically the fugitive the you know the the cop chasing the criminal and then finding out somewhere along the way that he's not the real bad guy that that's not the guy i should be chasing that guy's innocent Brian. Brian Dennehy, I mean, if he was in the fugitive, that movie would have been over in thirty minutes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's he figures it out so fast, and then and then we talked about this earlier. It becomes this thing where, well, what exactly is Brian Brown's motivation? Because I'll tell you, for a special effects guy, a future toy maker, he <laughs> is ex-
1: he is excellent at murdering people. <laughs> like, <laughs> so let's back up. Let's talk about what he does because in terms of Jerry Orbach's character, like he is supposed to stage a public murder of Jerry right. Orbach so that the mob will not try and try and knock him off before a trial. So yep, like you're saying, like we see him break out all these practical facts that he does on movies. And then there's this weird moment like after I, I'd say what, like after act two is when all of a sudden he starts using these things to kill people and it's and what's hilarious is like there's no moment of oh my god i, I killed a human being you know yesterday i was just working on a movie and now i'm just home aloning people left and right with all my gadgets <laughs> and it's it's so weird like it's it is and this is where we like brian brown he's a good actor he is There is something some he's got charisma he does not have the wherewithal to do it's not in his capacity and it's fine it's not in every actor's um to, to kind of show some more nuance like you and I talked about how it's unclear about the motivation and it's almost like you could see this in a test screening all of a sudden on after the little cards come in they're like we didn't understand his motivation. Okay, well, just throwing a shot of his girlfriend while he's thinking down oh, in the yeah. in the tunnel or in sorry in the sewer with the other homeless people. You know, <laughs> yep, yeah, that's why I'm doing it.
0: Well, that's true, yeah, because I that took me out of it. I, I felt I felt it a bit unnecessary, and it didn't really serve the movie well. But I saw why they were doing it, and we should. <laughs> he's he's he, so he's saddled with. I guess a girl that works with his FX department. Yeah. It, it, she, she's terrible. <laughs> like, yes. there's, there's no other way to say it. Like, her acting is, is god-awful. Um, and other supporting characters in the movie, Tom Noonan, who is a favorite of mine from Manhunter and Last Action Hero, he gets a thankless role really gets where he gets to put a boat in the water and gets shoved into the water. <laughs> He's a jobber. He sure. is a jobber. <laughs> he is the Mike Sharp of this movie, <laughs> yes, and it's it's very unfortunate because he's a far, I think he's a far more interesting uh, character, or at least a character actor than Jerry Orbach or whoever the hell the main police guy is. I I, I don't know who the that guy or is. The,
1: the, that the chief, character. yeah,
0: that the old guy's guy. awesome.
1: Like he's pretty. Yeah. Like I I liked him because he didn't go all Frank McRae on it. <laughs> you know, like he he reminded me of of Spicoli's teacher. Okay, there we go. <laughs> from Fast Times,
0: yes. but but yeah, it's Brian Brown. I, I I feel like there there could have been a, a movie that better suited his talents because uh, like something like No Remorse, no no this, no that. That seems more in line with like the Rambo Three type of action movie where it's just blow shit up, don't worry about it, um, and things like that. We talk about the truck that raleigh drives i love this truck it's almost the ninja turtles van it's just painted blue and has in giant letters fx yeah. uh written on it this movie had had a major hollywood star from the 80s starred in this thing like tom cruise or mel gibson or something i can't help but think that this movie would have had a massive toy appeal like even for an r-rated movie because that wasn't out of the question back then robocop was huge with kids uh, which is awful to even think about <laughs> but It's it feels like this movie, in a way, at least in in its in terms of its global appeal after it came out, uh, was a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah, no, I think
0: that's accurate.
1: Mm Hmm.
0: It's just it's just something I I I perceive when I see the movie. Now the movie, uh, like like we said, it it ends up in this weird Home Alone kind of finale, where I mean everything that he does is actually really cool. Uh. Can you explain to me the the mirror trick that he does? Because that thing, I, I, either it's the editing or it's just my my stupidity. I I could not figure out exactly how he was able to make that work.
1: I I think the the bigger thing for me is how did he make it work so fast? Like he, <laughs> right.
0: like, dude, he sets that thing up with like, in like five seconds. I think that's
1: a little. That's what. Um, is amazing to me is like he almost comes across like he's got more skills than just an FX guy. Like, there's a backstory exactly. to this guy before he got into this. He beat. was in NAM, everyone was in NAM. I know. mean, what's what, that could have <laughs> been interesting though? Like, if he that would have been good, if, even if it mm-hmm. wasn't Vietnam, but it was like, yeah, this guy dealt with some type of you know, maybe low level spy work or something like that. Like, that's why he can do some of this stuff like he can do this art of illusion pretty well if for movies is because he's got this backstory so that's stuff that would have been interesting but it's just such a weird third act where it's like he's gonna go to this mansion and and the thing is like is he out there to kill jerry jerry orbach or is he in there to arrest him is he trying what is he trying to do because does he even know this he even know jerry orbach is alive no, does he and, know that? No, he doesn't. And what's because uh, he doesn't seem surprised <laughs> when he sees Jerry Orbach. The thing because that's so th- funny th- is
0: th- well, we have to bring that up too. Uh, he he is under the impression that he's that he murdered Jerry Orbach, yeah, uh, and, and that and that he was set up and that real bullets were put into his gun, and this is all part of the ruse by the police department that's working with Jerry Orbach, who has a secret stash of money that he's going to give them. Towards the uh, end end of the film. The
1: the thing is, though, like he's done this squib thing a ton of times. So even if he had suspicions (sighs) about the bullets, it's like, geez, those (laughs) I shot him exactly where every squib was. He's the most (laughs) like he's the most accurate shooter
0: ever. (laughs) <laughs> I would. I would like to know more about the other guy they were gonna go after. McKinnon, in case Raleigh. Yes. yeah, McKinnon. Because man, I'll tell you, Brian Brown is so against doing this until they bring up McKinnon, yeah. and he has this disdain. <laughs> Just not that guy. Oh man. Jesus, you know. But uh, so this movie came out during the heyday of the spe- basically the '80s for me is the heyday of special effects, uh, practical at least. And this movie came out right around that time of practical effects and how cool they were, and everyone wanted to know how they were done. This is before the digital age, before Terminator 2 or Jurassic Park came out, and it really does showcase how cool practical effects are and how great they are. Uh, what are your thoughts on if they were like to do this in the modern age with digital effects? I, 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 because me personally, I'm not a big fan of CGI digital effects. I like, you know, telling me that they were done on a computer just kind of ruins it for me. Yeah. But this idea applied to that would be, I think, very interesting if you could do that.
1: Well, I what do think, you think? Th- therein <clears throat> lies a great new conflict you could add to it is digital versus practical effects. If you did a remake, Because you're right. I mean, nowadays we're we're CGIing Carrie Fisher into Mm -hmm. her younger self and and Moff Tarkin. You know, we're we're doing all this stuff, but like what happened to the art of like Stan Winston and these guys of creating masks and stuff like that, you know what I mean? And and I think that's where, if you did a remake of FX, that could be interesting to show that schism that occurred and how you still have these guys that are practical and how they actually create still the better illusion versus necessarily like a, a CGI guy. So basically, if you remade this, I think it would be awesome as if you had not just the Raleigh character, but whatever the the quote-unquote McKinnon character, however you would redo that. Actually have him in the movie, but he's a digital guy and Raleigh's character Are they is the working together guy. or maybe the, again I, I think you would have to kind of update because the then plot, you get a like mentor because the, then you get the
0: mentor to student uh, movie which I think is actually a decent idea that's that, that's really interesting that, that that's that's a good idea because <laughs> yeah I mean I think bad.
1: that's a what you're talking about is something that I think more and more people are are having to debate is whether or not they like the practical effects versus the digital. I think the you know the new Star Wars movie showed that, okay, you if we reintroduce the practical effects, what effect does that have on how much people like the movie? Now, I'm not saying it was the end all be all, but it definitely created, a much more familiar feel for people that were fans of the original trilogy versus ones that were of the prequel trilogy.
0: So, well, if we're talking
1: Star Wars,
0: you've you've you're one of the few people who's successfully defended the look of the prequels to me, in in that it's a very like almost perfect kind of of world, and then and then once the empire takes over then you get the original trilogy which is the lived in world yeah. and everything's run down and i really like that explanation yeah. and and i think that fits with like force awakens or something like that sure. where sure. it's it, you can't go back to that lucas style because that world is over and, yeah. and not just and and nothing to do with lucas selling star wars and not having anything to do with it it's just it's the result of the events that happen in episode 3 right basically so that yeah that's that's very that's very compelling uh, i i i like that
1: the interesting so, though is l- let's talk about this wrap up with the denny character because this absolutely. is another in this third act of, of bonkers here it, his wrap up is maybe even more bizarre
0: i agree uh not only does he basically commit uh, a crime by impersonating a police officer (laughs) because he ends up losing his badge he steals I I guess that's his captain yeah he steals his captain's badge pretends to be him which is interesting because everything's gonna get pinned on that guy but then after Brian Brown gets away with everything uh, and everyone's dead Brian Dennehy meets up with him finally and holds a gun to his head, to which, I mean, it's a—it's not in the movie, but it can basically be assumed, you know, I've got got—I've got the key to a lot of money, you know? And, oh! Yeah, and, and it's... And well, then it good, because
1: I don't have a pension anymore, so...
0: Right, he doesn't have a pension, which uh, that's brought up. He doesn't really have a future. It's, it, his, his life's work is his police work.
1: Well, so there's is too, where, remember he, when he sees Jerry Warbach on the ground, he's like, please tell me he's not dead. With almost right. this hopeful look in his eye that, like, he still has something to hold on to. But when he discovers that he's dead, that's when he dirty Harry's the badge and is like, ah, F it. I'm going to go head down and get some money from the the guy who thinks that he tricked me into thinking he's dead. But I know he's not. I'm just going to hang outside the morgue until he pops out. It's a very
0: strange wrap up because <laughs> it goes from Home Alone to Mission Impossible 2 where – Raleigh is wearing a Jerry Orbach mask (laughs) and it's a perfect mask. My God, because it's Jerry Orbach. Exactly. (laughs) That's that's why. And they go down, I guess where, where is it that the money is? It's Jamaica or it's, or the the Cayman islands.
1: (laughs) I I think I don't know. Yeah. But the, the, the reason has to be Jerry Orbach is like, he's the only, like it's, they set it up to where it is in such security. That you can't just be Brian Brown and walk in there with the key. They'll know something's up. So he has to go in there as Jerry Orbach to, again, keep the illusion alive and that right, he can successfully illusion. get the money.
0: And he comes out and gets in the car with Dennehy. And how much money is it? It's, uh,
1: it's $30 million.
0: $30 million. I mean, this is, wow. You go from 30000 to $30 million And I guess he's going to split it with Dennehy. And that's the... That's the end of the movie as the credits play over the, the the vehicle that they're in driving through what looks like that the Himalayas or something.
1: Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's it's where right? are they? <laughs> like I remember Geneva. Are they actually in? Um, because no, it's got. Because I remember them talking about Geneva. And that would be Switzerland, right?
0: But, yeah, it's uh, regardless. Sure. You know, it's uh, it's
1: an overseas account. It's an overseas account.
0: Now what? So that's the end of the movie. Now, what I am looking forward to, and I'm probably, I'm not going to lie, man, I'm probably going to watch the sequel tonight. Because I want to see what the fuck this is. Because uh, just from the way it sounds, because I'm not trying to read too much into the movie, but Denny, he seems to be a cop again. A la
1: Dirty Harry and Magnum. Force. I think he's a private eye. Oh, is he? Okay. yeah, Yeah.
0: That's more believable. But Raleigh, who has $15 million, now decides to leave the special effects business and downgrades himself to basically working at Duncan's Toy Chest. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's such a weird thing. Uh, I have to see how the movie does it. But anyway, so there is a sequel to this movie. And interestingly enough, it, it did about three quarters of the business of the first movie. Yet it opened at number one. And this movie came out five years later. So there was clearly an audience for this type of film. Later on, FX was turned into a television series back in 1998, where I believe it ran for one or two seasons. It was short-lived. This kind of idea is tailor-made for television. It's, it has a very MacGyver-esque feel to it, where you could do a case-by-case, a week thing, although wh- how in the world Raleigh Tyler would ever have time to work in the special effects business, you know, which anyone who's ever seen a DVD documentary will tell you, a movie takes up a considerable amount of a human being's time, yeah. Just to work on, yeah. I, I can't imagine how that would work. I would love to see a remake of this. I yeah. would like, given the full one hundred percent A list treatment with known actors with a bigger budget, I I would absolutely welcome to see another version of this movie being told it could be simply because it's too good of an idea and to go back to what we were talking about, uh, earlier, I love that fight scene. I hated it at first, (laughs) the fight scene in the apartment after the girlfriend gets killed because he knocks over this bunch of boxes and it just knocks this guy out. And and that just infuriated me. I was just, that can't be it. This guy's sniper. And then we get a great little brawl, which fight scenes in the eighties, you know, they're, they're touch and go. For every Lethal Weapon, there's going to be something that's going to be the exact opposite in terms of choreography and fighting. Actually, as much as I love Lethal Weapon, die hard between Carl and, and John McClane. Yeah. Like, that's always the be-all, end-all for me. But this is a pretty well-choreographed fight scene, and the direction of this movie is solid. You know a little bit more about Robert Mandel than I do.
1: I mean, he did the substitute, he did school ties, you know. He did the
0: substitute?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The original? Yeah,
0: oh yeah. Uh, he, <laughs> that's a fun movie.
1: Much like how we talked about Sydney Fury for Iron Eagle. He does and still is to this day, TV work. You know, he sure. you see him, his credits are like Nash Bridges, couple episodes, you know, and so on and so forth. So
0: but at least he's still working.
1: yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and so And so's
0: Brian Brown for that matter. and Brian Brian Dennehy is seems to do more stage work now. I read that he did. Uh, and I would have loved to have seen this uh, performance of Willie Lohman in Death of a Salesman back about ten years ago, which he is perfect for that kind of role. Uh, he's He's got the dramatic gravitas to pull something like that off.
1: Oh yeah.
0: So if you were to rate this movie on a scale of one to ten, what would you give it? Will? Probably seven. you know me me too. me yeah. too. This is a, this is a solid seven. This is one of the most seven sevens i think i've ever seen <laughs> yeah. it's it's a good movie i do recommend this movie uh it's it's there it was finally rewarding to finally see this movie and i'm glad this was the february flick that we chose from
1: 1986 any final thoughts um no i mean i think what you talked about this could be remade and I, You know, as much as we hate movies being remade, if you're going to remake a movie, remake a movie that fell short versus one that was really, really good. You know, if this was a 10, I'd say don't touch it. But, you know, there is room
0: for improvement. And that's that's always been my thing. I think Siskel and Ebert once said that where why do they remake perfect movies remake a movie that didn't quite live up to the expectations or or what I always say is uh, what it didn't live up to the promise of the plot. And we, lo- we like FX. This is a good movie, but there is room for improvement here. There, this, this isn't an untouchable movie, right. and the idea is too good. So, is that it for you? Yeah. Oh, I think that's it for me. That's FX. Uh, we will be back with our next episode of When Did That Come Out for March of 1986, where we will be covering Highlander. Oh, wow cannot wait uh this is one that we have both seen many times and this will be a fun movie to cover uh until then keep checking us out at on twitter at real change pod me myself i am at cm underscore stabs
1: i am at william Rinkin 83 and thank
0: you for checking us out and continue to do so we appreciate it all right y'all take care